we saw a debate in which Don Lemon was talking about her age and that she was past her prime, which is interesting because I think women age like fine wine. (laughs) (laughs) I was just watching this and I was like, are you kidding me? But I was also really frustrated because we weren't having the debate on substance that I thought could ensue about how the U.S. engages with countries around the world. Hey, it's Johanna Masca, and on today's episode of Press Advance, we're getting to know Nikki Haley, South Carolina's first female governor, a daughter of immigrants from India, and someone who has been hailed as the potential leader of the next generation Republican Party. She has conservative ideals, a background in accounting, and was Tea Party probably before Tea Party existed. She was elected first in 2004 to South Carolina's House of Representatives, challenging incumbent Larry Kuhn, the longest serving legislator in the South Carolina State House. Notably, when she ran for office, Kuhn's campaign falsely claimed she was a Buddhist, called her a housekeeper, and pictured her with her father wearing his turban. Despite all the smears and the innuendos, she went on to win. Later, her Democratic challenger accidentally said this. And we are going to escort her out the door. He didn't correct it. Instead, he just laughed at it. (laughs) The truth is, she is a Christian. She is a married mom of two. And she's running for president as a Republican. To get to know her better, I turned to Mahek Cook. Mahek is a Republican lawyer living in Ohio. Her parents also immigrated from India. So when she was thinking of running for office in Ohio, she reached out to Nikki Haley. Mark my words, do not underestimate her. She is one of the hardest working, intelligent leaders that I have ever come across. And I have worked on from presidential to Senate to gubernatorial races and even smaller races at a local level. I had the privilege of speaking to her and asking her for advice when I ran for the State House in Ohio. And I look back fondly upon that memory because I wasn't running for president of the United States or a huge senatorial campaign that could have potentially benefited her future. I was running for the State House and I reached out to a woman that I looked up to that is a leader that is fearless to say, you're an Indian immigrant, or at least your family came from India. You have maybe similar trials and tribulations that I have. Give me some advice on how to exist, how to be, how did you get to be governor? How did you take all of those trials and tribulations and turn them into success? And to my surprise, not only Nikki Haley, but her entire team wrapped their arms around me. Nikki spoke to me about what it means to run for office, how to distinguish myself, and then also spoke to my husband and gave him some key advice. Because I think as a spouse, when you run for office, we have to understand this was my full-time job, but not my husband, Michael's, just like Nikki Haley's running for president. That is her full-time job, but not her husband, Michael. So she really gave thoughtful advice about what's important and what to put aside. What did she say? So in terms of who I am running for office, I think one of the major challenges that I got 
was running as a woman in a very male-dominated world and a very male-dominated field. And Nikki said to always lead by example and lead by my merit. I didn't have to stand there and say, I'm an Indian immigrant, I'm a woman. I just needed to talk about my accomplishments and let them speak for themselves. I think a lot of times we stand there and we try so hard to raise our hands and say, but I'm different. Just prove it. Just say it. Just tell the world how you're different and let people get to know you. I think the other important thing is really to truly spend grassroots time with individuals to take questions and lead by example. A lot of times in politics, we are stuck behind cameras and Twitter and Facebook, and we're not actually connecting with individuals. Nikki takes so much time and opportunity. Look at her presidential race. I mean, she's had over 80 political events. She spent so much time in New Hampshire and Iowa connecting with individuals. That's the advice she gave to me. Go to every event, shake as many hands, and connect with individuals so that they know who you are. And the third piece of advice I think was one of the most important for me because I was trying to figure out how to connect and bring my husband into my campaign. And she explained to me again, this is your full-time job, Mahak. Take your husband where it's important and he needs to be with you and take him in moments when you are uncomfortable in a situation and you want everybody to know that you have a united front at home. Because I did get questions like, well, why haven't you had kids yet? And you're out without your husband. It's still very old school. I think it'd be very surprising for individuals as much progress as we've made for women. It's very old school. The first question I always got is, where's your husband? But there is not a single politician that's male that was ever asked, where's your wife? So she really helped me take some of the humor out of this and to stand on my own and say, my husband has a full-time job and this is my full-time job. It's my commitment to Ohioans. When she first launched on the scene was talking a lot about age and generational change. And you and I, I think both agree that it's probably time for some new generational change in Washington. Um, But the minute that she said it, it seemed to suck all of the oxygen out because she had also written an op-ed about her time as UN. She had questions about some of the funding that had gone to uh, different authoritarian regimes that had not supported the United States. And so she believed that we should not continue to support those regimes. Now, there's a bigger debate that I think could be had because some of the time, some of that funding is going to specific health programs and things to make sure that there's not something um, like Ebola that spreads and is terrifically dangerous. And so it may not be in our interest to cut off that funding, but we we didn't see that debate ensue. We saw a debate in which Don Lemon was talking about her age and that she was past her prime, which is interesting because I think women age like fine wine. (laughs) (laughs) I was just watching this and I was like, are you kidding me? But I was also really frustrated because we weren't having the debate on substance that I thought could ensue about how the U.S. engages with countries around the world. If 
you're watching Nikki Haley a little closer in some of the swing states. Is she getting to have that debate with people or is it just that's all sucked out because all people are talking about is age? Well, Johanna, you hit the nail on the head. The fact that you had Don Lemon make such an asinine statement, he truly said what he was thinking, though. And there are individuals that think like that, and I call them small-minded. It's just like when you hear somebody call a Republican a rhino. My response is that is a lazy way to categorize them without actually thinking about what they stand for, the diversity of thought they offer. And when it comes to Nikki Haley, she is having substantive conversations and she's having them. She's having them on the ground in New Hampshire. She's having them on the ground in Iowa. She is the most unscripted, thoughtful leader that I have seen that also has the credibility and the experience. She can go toe-to-toe with anybody on that national stage, and she knows what she stands for. I think that in terms of funding that she discussed in the op-ed that she wrote, I think there's some truth to that. Nikki Haley, she is the only woman right now in the race. Abortion is a going to be a hot topic for this election cycle because, um, of course, Roe v. Wade that had been protecting abortion rights until viability in the country, you know, of course, was overturned by the Supreme Court. The Republicans had said, push this back to the states. Now the debate is being had within the Republican Party of what would you do at the federal level? There's some interest in the Republican Party taking on federal abortion reform, whether that would be a ban of abortion that would be applied nationwide. I think most people have said, no, they're not for a ban that applies nationwide. Um, Although there is a question of, is there some duration? Roe v. Wade protected until viability, which was about, you know, 26 weeks or so when a fetus could survive on its own. As I understood, there was some question of whether she was for a ban at 15 weeks. And she had a conversation with the Susan B. Anthony coalition that wasn't accessible to the press in which maybe she had said something. Do you have any idea of how she's going to handle the issue of abortion, which is near and dear. I mean, both of us are moms. Um, Best thing I ever did in my life is have my child. Also, most important and most personal decision you will ever make in your life. And like you were talking about, you're asked as a woman about these decisions all the time. (laughs) And, And yet, you know, like, and I always get frustrated when people say, oh, it's just a woman's issue. I think, you know, there are a lot of consenting partners who have these very difficult decisions to make depending on what their situation is. And I'm one who believes I don't know someone else's situation, so I wouldn't want to make it for them. But Nikki Haley is going to have to take this on. How's she going to handle it? Well, and that's a good question, but she already has a record, Johanna. South Carolina was the 17th state to limit abortion after five months. So Nikki already has a record for protecting the life of the unborn. And where I really respect her, and I think where a lot of individuals get tripped up today, is 
the number of weeks or the number of months. Let's just talk about how we can give women more resources. And I think Nikki is one of the very few candidates that's actually talking about resources for women. When we talk about choice, I think it's such a false premise to say you have you're pro-choice, but then to say the only choice is abortion. How about other choices in our lives? How about choices for adoption? How about choices for more care? How about supplemental um, funding for women who are truly terrified about those medical bills? And I think what Nikki has done is she has a proven track record for being pro-life, protecting the life of an unborn. She's also been somebody who has been fearless to share her own story. She's talked about the fact that her and her husband, Michael, had trouble having children. She's empathetic. She's understanding. She's traveled to so many foreign countries, um, whether it's Venezuela and so many others, where she has watched mothers struggle to take care of their children. And what I see today is a woman who has a record to say that I am going to protect the life of an unborn. And she signed a law that said five months. Now, what she does as president, it's going to be very interesting because I have heard discussions about a national abortion ban. And let's be honest today, I've seen a lot of polling, even in the state of Ohio, that says 60% of Americans, at least just say Ohioans, want some access But then let's talk about the flip side. What are those choices you have? If you want to be pro-choice, let's talk about the choice of adoption. Let's talk about the choice of other healthcare alternatives. And I think that's where Nikki shines because she isn't trying to set up these false narratives and choices. She's actually saying, if you want to be pro-choice, here are all your choices. Let's go through them. But she has been a staunch proponent of making sure that we protect the life of an unborn child. And this is a very hot topic and it's very touchy for everybody, men and women alike. It's very touchy and it's very personal because um, I think I've said this before, but my parents had a child and gave them up for adoption when they were in high school. And um, my mom uh, missed that child every day of her life and wished that she had the opportunity to raise him. When he eventually came back because he found Kansas was an open adoption state. And I think a lot of people don't necessarily understand that that's all at a state level too. Like the states, the government is involved in everything from the moment you're born and you get a social security number to the moment that you die and they have to have a death record. And so, you know, in the state of Kansas, you could go as an adoptee, you could go to the state and you could get your uh, adoption records. And so, um, my brother Kevin, after he had his first child, decided to go to the state of Kansas and get his adoption record and managed to find my parents. And my mom was so elated to know that he was okay and um, and get to you know have a relationship with him, but would regret for you know she's still it's very hard to talk about that because she was not in the position of making the decision. Her parents were saying she needed to give up the child for adoption. And, um, it's, it's going to change your life, whatever it is. If you have a child, whenever you have a child, it's so personal. And the other thing that I've seen is, you know, there are situations in which it's, life or death of a mother and to have state regulators make it so political 
Um, it's always been interesting to me why the Republican Party that's won for less regulation, and I can understand there are firm, firm beliefs in this, but um, why they are so for such heavy regulation in this area, because often, like I said, it's the last, they're trying to make a life or death decision, or they're making a very complicated decision if it's at all after, you know, a certain duration. And to have a government office involved in that complicates that in the most frustrating ways sometimes for even physicians. Well, I have to say, I'm so thankful to your mother for making such a difficult decision and having strong parents. And sacrifice, because it wasn't her decision. It was a huge sacrifice that she made, um, I would say. And she was an incredible mom. And at her school, she was called a slut. She was called terrible, terrible names because she was a teenage mom. And they were in Catholic school and they had no sex ed, which is another reason why I get kind of very frustrated when we're talking about, you know, we can't teach our kids sex ed. Like my parents, I, I got sex ed education. It was um, huge and they didn't have it. And so all of these things were, they had no idea. But I think this is where education is so important. You're a hundred percent right. And I think that's something Nikki Haley's talked about, right? It's making sure that individuals have resources. Now, when we had sex education and as I was growing up, my mom for sure signed that permission slip that said Mahek does not need to attend. But again, this is where I think parental choices and parental permission is so important. What's happening in our country today, though, is an attack on parents and what's happening to parents' rights. And that's something else Nikki Haley talks about. It's making sure that we protect the foundation of family. I can tell you in the state of Ohio, this is extremely troubling. We have a very extreme ACLU-backed amendment that is trying to allow for up to full-term abortions. And then it states in the amendment, including but not limited to, and it lists a whole host of different surgeries. And when you say including but not limited to, Johanna, we're also talking about transgender surgeries and there's no guardrails there. There's nothing about parental consent. Like where are we today in America where parents don't matter? Their choices don't matter. We don't respect them when it comes to them raising and rearing their own children. I think that's the issue that we're having across the board. So we need to have these really tough debates and these really tough discussions with women like Nikki Haley, who she's a mother of two. She's talked about how difficult it was to get pregnant. She's also met with so many women that have struggled, whether it's through pregnancy or taking care of their children today. But we need to have those tougher discussions. And the Republican Party as a whole I think is compassionate, empathetic, and caring. So your point to the life of the mother, I, I have a tough time believing that there's going to be any state that's going to say, let the mother die, have the baby. I haven't seen that. What do you want to see from Nikki Haley on a debate stage? On the debate stage, I am excited for Nikki to talk about her three platform issues, which is truly economic growth and getting inflation under control. It's truly what's impacting Americans today in our pocketbooks. She also talks a lot about safety and security, and that's from border and immigration to China. I mean, protecting us from our enemies and not starting wars that we don't need because we are in wars today that we don't belong in. And then the third is 
getting back to our culture and our fundamentals, the basics of education, getting rid of woke policies and politics. And I think what's interesting is for Americans to know what she stands for and what she's already accomplished. She's not talking about the future as an aspiration. She's actually done these things. She has led, whether it's governor, leader in the UN, she truly has a track record. And I think it's time for America to see that. And she may not be in mainstream media today, every single day, you know, on whether it's Fox or CNN or MSNBC, but that's because she's spending time in the town halls. And I truly believe that grassroots effort that she's taking in New Hampshire, Iowa, and finally, in some of these early states, the American people are going to speak and they're going to be for her. And she's going to surge. A lot of people talk about her polling today. It makes me laugh. I think she was at 3% when she was running for governor uh, against an incumbent. So it's only a matter of time. And I like to tell everybody listening, do not underestimate Nikki Haley. She has always been underestimated and she always succeeds. Are you still in touch with her? I am. Her team has been truly, again, just so supportive. Um, they are, they, it was surprising to me even that I got a handwritten note. It's actually in my office from Nikki after I lost my state house run and her encouragement for me to run. A lot of people, including my father, were really proud that I ran for office and want me to do it again. But again, it touched my heart that there is a woman, not even in the state of Ohio, that had the thought and the sentiment and the push to say, run again do it again. My thanks to Mahek for sharing her personal story of Nikki Haley. But to get more background, I had to call the source. Associated Press reporter Meg Kennard, who covers Haley in South Carolina and has for the last 18 years. So when I started here, now former governor, now former UN ambassador Haley was in the state legislature. She served a couple of terms there before she ran for governor in 2010. So, you know, everybody talks about she just kind of burst onto the scene right then. But for those of us who were here in South Carolina, she was certainly not a super well-known commodity before she ran for governor. But she had made some waves as a state lawmaker. And, uh, yep, I was there at the beginning. So when she ran for office initially... The way she casts it, it is it was over legislative pay transparency. Essentially, South Carolina had been giving themselves raises, the legislators had been giving themselves raises and not tracking the votes. And so she says she took on the establishment in South Carolina and won. Is that is that true? Certainly voting on the board for legislative pay raises was one of Nikki Haley's biggest claims to fame when she was a state lawmaker. She talks about it often even now in her presidential campaign. But at the time, she was big on demanding transparency, particularly when it came to those legislative votes about finances and about pay for the lawmakers themselves. Before all this came about, those votes just kind of happened in a you know roll call or affirmation, acclamation kind of way. But now there's a big video board with each lawmaker's name that makes it clear exactly who's voting how on which bill. And for then-Representative Haley, that was one of the big things that she did push through and continues to talk about it to this day. But you know when she went into the governor's office, continuing to talk about state government transparency and the need to reform a lot of the finances, 
that were at play in state government, that continued to be a theme for her. So it's something she kind of got started when she was a lawmaker, but it, it was certainly continuing through her time as governor. So what was it like to cover her? Because I know, you know, I've worked in a state house for a governor and there's often an open door in, you know, local politics like that, especially when someone says that they are for transparency. Was she as transparent as a lawmaker or a governor? It's kind of tricky when you talk about that. I mean, let's remember that Nikki Haley's immediate predecessor in the governor's mansion was Mark Sanford. And we perhaps remember Mark Sanford for a lot of other things that transpired toward the end of his time as governor. I've been unfaithful to my wife. I developed um, a relationship with a, um, which started as a dear, dear friend from Argentina. But one of the things that he did was institute a policy called Open Door After Four. And that was not every day, but on a regimented schedule, you know, inviting constituents to come and to spend time talking with him about really whatever they wanted. Um, He did the same kind of thing when he was a congressman, both before and after his time as governor. But that was kind of his opportunity to connect with people and to show them, hey, I'm, I'm here. I work for you. Um, Governor Haley didn't quite adopt the same sort of policy, but she was big on talking about, you know, I'm here to you as the citizens of South Carolina. I'm here to work for you. And here are all these ways that I'm going to help save your taxpayer dollars. Um, So she did try to show, I think, through her actions as governor, some of that transparency. But I will say, as a reporter, at times, um, filing Freedom of Information Act requests and trying to get access to a lot of those communications was a little tough. And she's not alone in this. This is not the only gubernatorial or otherwise administration where reporters sometimes have a, a difficult time of really tracking down what should be public information in terms of communications and email and calendars and schedules Um, During the Haley administration, there was a time where some of those communications were happening on personal devices. Um, And we, as the media at the time, made the argument that, okay, well, maybe those aren't state-owned devices, but it's still the business of the state. And that should be something that we have access to. Um, We didn't win that argument a lot of the time. And that was somewhat frustrating just from an accountability journalism point of view, you know, really trying to make sure that through journalists, we can provide the public um, the information about what their publicly elected, publicly funded officials are doing. So that was a little frustrating. um, And just, you know, one thing that I remember from from covering that piece of her. Interesting. I mean, you are right to recall Sanford and, uh, you know, he got lost in the woods with his mistress. So (laughs) I have to wonder sometimes what's in the water in South Carolina, because (laughs) these rumors swirled around Haley, too. There was that blogger, Will Folks, who came out and said he was having an affair with Nikki Haley. Um, I've seen a lot of accusations, especially around women, and you never know what's real. Is is there anything there? I mean, Nikki Haley was always very adamant there was nothing to this, um, that, you know, this was just something that was being made up by people who opposed her politics. And like you note, is something that oftentimes we do see for female politicians and women attempting to assume positions of power in our government. Um, So she certainly 
spoke out against it, was elected despite all of those allegations, and then was reelected by an even larger margin four years later. So whether it's true or not, I wasn't there, but it certainly did not seem to significantly hamper any of her efforts at office. When you're running for president and your state is early, it sets up a contest, you know, where your state really has to support you. I remember when uh, Governor Vilsack in Iowa had been trying to run. Um, In fact, uh, we ended up taking on some of his staff when they didn't end up getting there. But, uh, you know, if you don't catch that wave early of the support of your own state, it's pretty telling. So what do you think about South Carolina's um, allegiance to their former governor, Nikki Haley? She certainly has a lot of support here. I've now covered her out in the field um, multiple times at her launch, as well as some other events since then. And there are a lot of people who show up, a lot of people who like her. And these are local people. These are South Carolinians. These are people who, if they were around, may have voted for her before, but certainly recognize her as being of and from the state. Um, I've also met people who travel to these events from as far away as Michigan and New York. So, you know, similar to some other big political rallies we see around the country, people are willing to travel to get to know her if they already really think that she might be the one that they'll support in 2024. But you're absolutely right in looking at previous election cycles and the candidates that came from them and then looking at their home state primaries South Carolina is never a dull place to cover politics. I've been doing it for a while, and I have never once been bored or with lack of something to do. But particularly with a homegrown candidate in a state that has the first presidential primary in the South for Republicans, that makes it even more important to have that homegrown support and to really feel that you might be able to win your home state because the candidates that don't often struggle in the ones that follow. And when you're early on the calendar, that just makes it even more crucial. Yeah. What is it that the national pundits are missing about Nikki Haley so far? That's a great question. (laughs) Um, I think I've seen a lot of framing in coverage about how Nikki Haley is running to be VP, that she would love to be someone's vice president, potentially for Um, former President Donald Trump, should he win the GOP nomination. And I would caution against that singular framing because perhaps, I don't know, I can't forecast the future. Maybe she would be picked for somebody's running mate down the line. But I think at this point, Nikki Haley is certainly running for president. My thanks again to Mahek Cook and Meg Kennard, We will certainly be following Nikki Haley's journey on the trail and hopefully her foray on the debate stage. I really appreciate all of you who stuck around. Our motto for the Iowa campaign for President Obama was respect, empower, include. And gosh, I think we could get back to that in politics. That is exactly what I want to do on Press Advance. And I'd love to have the audience involved. So if you're listening to this, please find me on social media at Johanna Masca. Send me what you think and let me know if I should read it on the podcast. Please follow us, rate and review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.